So today's podcast is on bugs and drugs, a microbiology primer. Our four learning objectives are one, to recognize the commensal flora of different physiologic regions of the human body. Two, to understand the link between the human microbiome and empiric antimicrobial selection. Three, to describe some general trends for antibiotic coverage of gram-positive and gram-negative organisms. And four, to rationalize the guidelines suggested empiric therapy for different infections using knowledge of the human flora and antimicrobial spectrum. So we've all seen those flowcharts dividing microbes by their morphology and cell wall characteristics. We spend a lot of time looking at them, but it can be hard to retain all the bacteria listed by different lab tests. Really all I retained the first few times I looked at them is that we have gram-positive organisms, gram-negative organisms, and then organisms that don't stain. And while the lab tests themselves don't really matter for us clinically, they're helpful because they help us establish patterns that can allow us to mentally identify trends in antimicrobial susceptibility. Cell wall morphology dictates the staining, but also a lot about pathogen behavior, like preferred environment that they colonize in the body, and what antibiotics might be effective against them. The cell wall morphology has patterns for knowing the human flora and where microbes like to hang out, which is one of the major determinants of empiric therapy. Which intuitively makes sense. If a microbe colonizes an area of the body, it's more likely to pathogenically invade and infect that area because it's already around if there are disruptions in normal host defenses. And if a microbe colonizes somewhere, we also know that the environment favors its growth, meaning that the microbe can do well in those conditions to multiply and cause an infection. So for example, cellulitis is usually caused by gram-positive organisms, because those organisms colonize and do well in open areas like the skin. And from a chemistry and basic sciences standpoint, the impact of the differences between the gram-positive and gram-negative cell wall are much more interesting than the flowcharts and wet lab tests make them seem. Yeah, I mean, we know gram-positive pathogens have a thick peptidoglycan cell wall, and sure, this alters the staining technique. But more importantly, this thick peptidoglycan cell wall is actually a lot easier for antibiotics to penetrate compared to the more complex cell wall of gram-negatives. And so because of this, generally gram-positive pathogens are more susceptible to antibiotics compared to gram-negatives. Yes, and the gram-positive and gram-negative organisms have some different microbial machinery and mechanisms of resistance too. Gram-positive pathogens don't tend to produce beta-lactamases, which are enzymes that break down beta-lactams, although Staphylococcus makes a weak beta-lactamase, whereas gram-negatives do make these enzymes. So that's another reason gram-positive organisms tend to be more susceptible to our antibiotics, because so much of our antibiotic arsenal is beta-lactam-based. The cell wall and machinery of gram-negatives tends to be more complicated overall. So in addition to making those beta-lactamases that can hydrolyze beta-lactam antibiotics, gram-negative pathogens have a complex cell wall composed of a lipopolysaccharide layer with a weakly negative exterior, stabilized by divalent cations, so magnesium and calcium. So picture a complex cell wall with three layers and a bunch of electrical charges. It's much more difficult to penetrate the cell wall of gram-negative pathogens because of that tri-layer and the electrostatic interactions. The cell wall differences also affect where on the human body these microbes like to colonize, not just antibiotic susceptibilities as well. In general, gram-positive organisms prefer areas of the body that are open to air and usually drier. This includes more superficial areas like the human mouth and upper respiratory tract. So gram-positives colonize areas like our skin, nares, ears, mouth and pharynx, as well as our lower genital urinary tract. So logically, these are the areas where gram-positives tend to cause infections. That's why strep and staph are cellulitis bugs and cause a lot of our superficial skin and soft tissue infections like erysipelas and superficial abscesses. And then if we think back to those flowcharts, we have cocci, which are spheres, and bacilli, rods. Again, it's not so much that we care about the shape of the different gram-positive microbes, but knowing their shape does help us establish some patterns. So we do have both gram-positive cocci and gram-positive bacilli. But most commonly, clinically, when we talk about gram-positive pathogens, we worry predominantly about gram-positive cocci, as these are more commonly encountered. 
Yeah, usually when we're worried about covering gram-positive pathogens, we're thinking about strep, staph, and enterococcus, our gram-positive cocci. So we said that gram-positives usually like to hang out on the skin, the nose, ears, mouth, and urethra, and this holds true for strep and staphylococcus. But just an important side note is that enterococcus is a bit different in terms of its preferred environment. Like its name implies, it's an enteric colonizer, so even though it's a gram-positive, it likes the gut. Okay, so here's a question to put some of this into context. Which of the following bugs are likely to be found on somebody's skin? Pick all of the ones you think would plausibly found if we were to swab your skin or nares right now. 1. Staph aureus. 2. Staph capitis. 3. Group C strep. and 4. E. coli. Well, gram-positives like to hang out in more open areas. So which of the above are gram-positives? The first three. E. coli is a gram-negative pathogen and doesn't colonize normal intact skin. So this brings us to gram-negative microbes. Gram-negatives are in some ways the opposite of gram-positive microbes. We still have gram-negative cocci and bacilli, but the gram-negative organisms we worry about clinically most commonly are gram-negative bacilli. And the preferred environment for gram-negative bacilli is the opposite of gram-positive cocci. Gram-negative bacilli tend to prefer deeper areas of the body, like our GI tract, the lower GI tract. But we do have a few gram-negative cocci, like Haemophilus influenzae and Moraxella cateralis, that we worry about. These are our respiratory gram-negatives, and these hang out in aerated places like the oropharynx and can cause pneumonia or acute otitis media in children. Yes, but usually when we're worried about covering gram-negative pathogens in what we think of as a gram-negative infection, for example, intra-abdominal infections or pyelonephritis, we're more concerned with the gram-negative bacilli. And since there are way more gram-negatives we worry about clinically, it's helpful to break them down into more categories. The easiest way to subcategorize the gram-negative bacilli are by community gram-negative bacilli and nosocomial gram-negative bacilli. We have acronyms for each of these. The PEC, P-E-C-K, organisms are our classic community gram-negatives, commonly found in the gut of most humans. This stands for Proteus, E. coli, and Klebsiella, PEC. In general, our community gram-negative PEC organisms are more sensitive to beta-lactam antibiotics and other antibiotics. We can cover these fairly reliably with cefazolin, very reliably with ceftriaxone, and any beta-lactam-beta-lactamase inhibitor combinations like amoxiclav and piptazo. In contrast, nosocomial gram-negative pathogens tend to be more resistant to antibiotics. While E. coli and Klebsiella, two of our PEC organisms, are still encountered in hospitalized patients, the nosocomial version of E. coli and Klebsiella have evolved to be more resistant to antibiotics than their community versions. They can be ESBL, which stands for Extended Spectrum Beta-Lactamase Producing, meaning that they're resistant to ceftriaxone and other third-generation cephalosporins. Then we also have our true classic nosocomial organisms, our SPACE organisms, the historic acronym for more resistant nosocomial gram-negatives. SPACE has different variations, but includes serratia, pseudomonas, acinetobacter, citrobacter, and enterobacter. These pathogens are found in soil in the natural environment, but become part of normal flora in hospitalized patients. They are more commonly resistant to third-generation cephalosporins, as well as any narrower-spectrum beta-lactams. We would usually empirically treat these organisms with piptazo, or for some, like enterobacter, a carbapenem while awaiting susceptibilities. So to recap gram-negatives, we have three sort of categories of gram-negative microbes. We have our gram-negative cocci, which are our respiratory gram-negatives, which hang out in more open and aerated regions, kind of like the gram-positive cocci. Then we have our more frequently encountered and worried about gram-negative bacilli, which hang out in the dark, hidden places of the body, usually the lower gut. And our gram-negative bacilli can be further divided into our community gram-negative bacilli and our nosocomial gram-negative bacilli. This is relevant because if we have a gram-negative infection, like an intra-abdominal infection or a pyelonephritis, 
we need to think about whether our patient is from community or hospital, because community gram-negatives, our PEC organisms, are more susceptible to different antibiotics, while nosocomial gram-negatives, our space organisms, are more resistant. And it used to be said that space organisms were prone to something called inducible resistance from a special type of beta-lactamase called AMP-C. But this has largely been debunked in recent years, as there's far more nuance to that than the acronym allows. So while space organisms are generally more resistant than community PEC organisms, that's where the utility of those acronyms now start and stop. For the purposes of our podcast, we will use the PEC acronym to describe community gram-negative bacilli, and the SPACE acronym as a helpful acronym for nosocomial gram-negatives. But some of the historic connotation to the SPACE acronym is now antiquated. Yeah, those acronyms are really just a tool to remember some general trends in antimicrobial susceptibility. For instance, historically we wouldn't have used ceftriaxone for any of those organisms, whereas now we know ceftriaxone is appropriate therapy for several of them. So there's really a lot of nuance to antibiotic resistance in practice, which is why medical microbiology is its own specialty. So quick question to see if people are still hanging in there. Which of the following organisms are likely to cause a community-acquired pneumonia? 1. Klebsiella pneumonia. 2. E. coli. 3. Streptococcus pneumoniae. 4. H. influenzae. 5. Serratia marcescens. So of the above options, to narrow it down, we need to think about which organisms colonize the mouth and upper airways to be present to capitalize on host vulnerabilities. And we know it's gram-positive organisms that like to hang out in those drier and more superficial areas, or the two respiratory gram-negative cocci, H. influenzae or M. cateralis. So we can start by ruling out gram-negative bacilli. Klebsiella pneumoniae and E. coli are gram-negative bacilli that usually colonize the gut and won't be around in the oropharynx to be aspirated to cause a pneumonia. Serratia marcescens is a nosocomial gram-negative bacilli unlikely to be involved in community-onset anything, and certainly not a community-acquired pneumonia. So that leaves strep pneumonia, a gram-positive, and H. influenzae, one of our two respiratory gram-negative cocci. Both can cause pneumonia, although Hib vaccinations have drastically reduced pneumonia from H. influenzae. So that sort of ties up our aerobic microbes. Now let's take a quick dive into anaerobes. Anaerobes do follow some of the same trends as their aerobic counterparts. Gram-positive anaerobes tend to be in more superficial places, but still less well aerated, obviously, given their preference for an anaerobic environment. But they like the oropharynx and lower GU, more superficial places compared to gram-negative anaerobes. Gram-negative anaerobes like the deep gut more, just like our aerobic gram-negative bacilli, like the deep dark places. And they have some of the same trends for antibiotic resistance as their aerobic counterparts. For instance, like our gram-positive aerobes, gram-positive anaerobes tend to be more susceptible to our beta-lactam antibiotics. And just like our gram-negative aerobic bacteria, our gram-negative anaerobes make beta-lactamases that hydrolyze beta-lactam antibiotics and need to be covered by either anaerobic-specific agents like metronidazole or by beta-lactamase inhibitors like clavulanic acid or tazobactam. Obviously, we have some drugs that are best targeted to anaerobes specifically because they do have distinct machinery, and metronidazole is a prime example of that. But the trend still stands. So that summarizes anaerobes, and you can see that they follow a lot of those same trends like we mentioned, as aerobes do. So now for the final category of microbes that we'll talk about today, atypicals. Atypical pathogens are bugs that have a totally different cell wall. Either it's very simplistic, or they have no cell wall at all, like mycoplasma. They don't stain on gram scene accordingly, and none of our drugs that work on the cell wall will have activity against atypicals. These bugs don't have penicillin-binding proteins in their cell wall to bind beta-lactams. Only drugs like macrolides, doxycycline, and fluoroquinolones that act inside the cell will be active against atypical microbes. Beta-lactams just don't have a place to bind on the cell wall, so they have no activity against these organisms. Right. 
And I think in practice, people throw around the word atypical sort of nonsensically in that you'll hear people refer to an atypical pneumonia to just mean a weird pneumonia with either strange chest x-ray findings or a bizarre clinical presentation. But a true atypical pneumonia caused by our atypical pathogens is one caused by those pathogens defined as not having a normal cell wall. And I think it is actually pretty important to keep the true meaning of atypical pathogens in mind because that's what helps us understand the antimicrobials that are effective against our atypical pathogens, like mycoplasma, legionella, chlamydophila, to name a few. Okay, so question. Which drugs of the following will work on atypical organisms? 1. Doxycycline. 2. Ceftriaxone. 3. Vancomycin. 4. Azithromycin. Well, we've just said that atypicals don't have the usual cell wall with penicillin binding proteins. So to answer this question, let's reframe it as basically... Which of the above drugs act on the cell wall and can be ruled out as options? Ceftriaxone is a beta-lactam which acts on penicillin binding proteins in the cell wall. Vancomycin is a glycopeptide that acts in a different region of the cell wall of typical bacteria. Since atypicals don't have those proteins for either beta-lactams or vancomycin to bind to, neither ceftriaxone nor vancomycin will cover atypical microbes. Doxycycline and azithromycin, on the other hand, both act intracellularly and both will have activity against atypicals accordingly. Okay. Now let's talk through some practice cases and apply concepts of the human microbiome to rationalize empiric therapy selection. Our empiric therapy for patients who present to emergency with mild community-acquired pneumonia is high-dose amoxicillin. Why does this make sense? Well, we know that strep pneumonia hangs out in the oropharynx and is around to be aspirated into the lungs and does well in an aerobic environment like the lungs. We know that gram-positive pathogens are generally more susceptible to beta-lactams and don't make beta-lactamases to hydrolyze amoxicillin. So we can appreciate why, for most outpatients who are stable enough that we don't need broad coverage, amoxicillin is fine. Now let's look at our empiric therapy for a non-purulent skin and soft tissue infection, like a simple cellulitis or an erysipelas. For a non-purulent skin and soft tissue infection, if it's an outpatient setting, we can often just give amoxicillin. Why? Well, what hangs out on the skin? Strep and staph. But here, based on the description as non-purulent and outpatient, we would worry more about strep, specifically group A, group C, and group G strep. Right. If the patient's sicker and being admitted, or if we actually had some purulence, like a skin abscess, we would worry about covering both streptococcus and staphylococcus, since the latter is associated with purulent skin and soft tissue infections. Or if the patient's more unwell, we might not risk missing staph just in case. In that case, we might use cefazolin or cephalexin. But for a non-purulent cellulitis with unbroken skin, for many patients, we really just worry about streptococcus and we can use amoxicillin. But regardless of whether it's an outpatient or inpatient with skin and soft tissue infection, if there's no chronic wound and we just have a cellulitis, we don't worry about gram-negatives or anaerobes and we don't need to cover them. Gram-negatives and anaerobes don't hang out on the skin and wouldn't thrive in that open, dry, well-aerated environment to cause a cellulitis. So we almost never need something like piptazo for cellulitis. And that's why our guidelines for skin and soft tissue infections suggest treating cellulitis with agents like amoxicillin or cephalexin or if the patient needs IV therapy, penicillin G, or cefazolin. Okay, now let's compare the empiric therapy for the above infections to, say, an appendicitis, where we get a perforation of the appendix in a patient who has been residing at home and an abscess forms. The gut is full of gram-negative bacilli, both aerobic and anaerobic. The patient is coming from the community, so which gram-negatives do we worry about? In a community-onset intra-abdominal infection, like an abscess, we worry about our community gram-negative bacilli, like PEC, and in this case, with the deep gut and an abscess, which is a very anaerobic environment, we would worry about gram-negative anaerobes too, along with some gram-positive anaerobes. So for most of these patients, we would give ceftriaxone to cover gram-negative aerobes and admetronidazole to cover gram-negative anaerobes. 
And a reminder that gram-positive anaerobes, which may also be present, tend to be quite susceptible to beta-lactams, and will be covered reliably by the ceftriaxone. Some gram-positive anaerobes will also actually be covered by the metronidazole. So this regimen of ceftriaxone and metronidazole offers good gram-negative coverage and reliably covers anaerobes. Right. We are treating a gut infection where we know gram-negative aerobes and anaerobes predominate. And since the patient is from the community, we just worry about covering PEC among the gram-negatives, not space. So we can see that empiric therapy for an intra-abdominal infection, which would implicate gram-negative pathogens predominantly, both aerobic and anaerobic, is very different from empiric therapy for a skin and soft tissue infection, which would implicate predominantly gram-positive aerobic pathogens. Okay, now our last case. Let's rationalize empiric therapy for a diabetic foot infection in the setting of a chronic ulcer. These patients have a total breakdown in host defenses and a change from a dry environment of intact skin to a broken down wet environment with lower oxygen tension. These patients also frequently have contact with the healthcare system because of their comorbidities and other needs and have often had multiple exposures to antibiotics. So this changes the microbial environment significantly and we now have an environment that can foster gram-negative and anaerobic growth. And if the patient has been repeatedly exposed to healthcare, we can alter their flora to shift from the usual more sensitive PEC organisms to include both PEC and space organisms, the latter because of repeated antibiotic exposure, as well as significant exposure to healthcare settings. Right, and gram-positive microbes will still obviously be there in the skin and soft tissue infection, because they're still around. But we just also have gram-negatives, because the environment has shifted so much in the setting of a deep ulcer. And that explains why for serious, life-or-limb-threatening diabetic foot infections in the setting of a deep chronic ulcer, we cover quite broadly. So, take-home notes for this podcast. 1. Gram-positive aerobic pathogens mostly hang out in more superficial or well-aerated regions, like the skin, the upper respiratory tract, nose, ears, etc. 2. Gram-negative aerobic pathogens like deeper, darker, more hidden places, such as the lower GI. 3. Gram-positive pathogens tend to be easier to kill and more susceptible to different antibiotics compared to gram-negatives. This is explained by the simpler gram-positive cell wall and that they mostly do not make beta-lactamases other than staphylococcus. 4. Gram-negative pathogens have a complex cell wall that makes them more resistant to different antibiotics. The community gram-negative Proteus, E. coli, and Klebsiella, aka the PEC organisms, are more susceptible compared to the nosocomial gram-negatives, our space organisms. And five, anaerobes follow some of the same trends as their aerobic counterparts. Gram-positive anaerobes hang out in the mouth and more superficial areas like the lower GU and are more susceptible to beta-lactams. Gram-negative anaerobes like darker, deeper areas like the lower GI and make beta-lactamases and are best treated with metronidazole or beta-lactam-beta-lactamase inhibitors like amoxiclap or piperacillin-tazobactam. So that concludes this podcast. Thanks for listening. Our next podcast will be on acute exacerbations of COPD. 